Hello, and welcome to Hanks for the Memories. You've got a friend in us. This is episode 27, That Thing You Do, from 1996. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Joey Lewandowski. And Mike, this is a movie mm-hmm. that we talked about not two years, actually a little over two years ago, but for oh. Watch the Throne, our Charlize Theron podcast. That's right. We watched what was then, we were calling, the Charlize Cut. Now we are watching the Hanks Cut, because... Right the first movie that Tom Hanks wrote and directed. That's right. And there is a director's cut as well as that theatrical cut. So, yeah, that's what we were calling the Charlize cut, the director's cut. But now that it's Hanks, it's the Hanks cut. So what's fascinating to me is that you and I, I think, before we watched, we before we recorded the Watch the Throne episode, I think we were only familiar with the th- theatrical cut. Because yes. we were, I think, if I recall, we were both like, Wait, there's an there's another version with an extra forty minutes, and like yeah. it's mostly Charlize. Yeah, it's like um, not aware of this. Where this? Are we doing this? <laughs> the strange thing I think this time is that back then I was like, hell yeah, more Charlize. This is great. Now that we're just watching it as a movie, basically, because mm-hmm. Tom Hanks is not in it a ton. This is just no. sort of his creative vision. This did not work as well for me this time. No, I agree. I still like it. I still think it's a fun movie, but this is not the prime cut, if you will, right? And I think you there's, uh, a, little, there's a little fat to be, there's a little to be cut off. There's there's more, was more to cut um, the food for f- foodie fil- foodie films man himself but i think you mentioned Tom something here. uh of, like it's not the first awkward hanks extended cut we've oh, yeah. watched this, this is season 2.0 it is it's Which crazy crazy i don't i don't understand it i don't get it but uh, isn't it crazy how much it changes the overall tone and theme of both pictures when you have these extra like scenes and almost an extra hour or something it's like that thing you do goes from being like about this fun one hit wonder band to about this kid who wants to save jazz in my opinion <laughs> the movies <laughs> end in different ways too like he's not he's not the dj at the end of the theatrical cut no no and he's not like recording all the people that's right yeah it's very different oh boy uh before we go any further okay. i do want you to give a pl- i mean if people i think this is definitely one of those situations where like this is kind of sort of a movie that i grew up on in a way like my dad loves this movie so it was always on like i saw parts of it here and there so in my head i'm like oh everybody knows this movie but i don't think i don't know if that's true or not so if people are listening to this podcast this fine fine podcast Quality. and they have not seen this movie yet yes what is that thing you do about so it's basically about the this guy named Guy Patterson who works at his parents' store but is secretly a, or not so secretly, a uh, the town beatnik who's a really great drummer and loves jazz. And one day the local band needs him to fill in on the skins, mm-hmm. and he does. And uh, at the talent show, he changes the tempo of the song from a ballad to like a dance beat, and it becomes like a Yeah, Mike, hit. this is not a polka. And an overnight sensation, hey, polka, polka, everybody. And, uh, you know, they record a record, they get heard, they meet a manager, plays on the radio. Eventually, they get to Playtone Records and Tom Hanks himself, who puts them on tour with the rest of the artists. They go across country, they land in L.A., they get into a movie. The band breaks up over creative differences and a bunch of other things. One of them goes to get married, the other goes to be a Marine. And Guy ends up uh, with Liv Tyler in the end as a jazz teacher in Portland. I don't know. We'll get there, but that's that thing you do. So there's a lot of Hanks connections here. Number one, I mean, obviously he hit the first movie that we said this that he wrote and directed, right? But he just coming off two movies ago, Apollo 13, and we've got Brian Cranston in here talking about the Gemini mission. That's right, he's an astronaut. And I remember talking about that briefly when we talked about it for Charlize because we we're like, oh, Hanks loves space, but like I didn't realize how close together this was with Apollo 11, or Apollo 13. So that's number one. Number yeah, two. Yeah, oh, just real quick, but Cranston played Buzz Aldrin on the Earth to the Moon there in we an go. episode. So another Hanks connection. Another connection. 
Uh, this is not really a Hanks action, but a space action. Liv Tyler, a couple years later, go play Arm- in Armageddon, mm-hmm. right? So, like, she's astronaut adjacent in a lot of these movies. True. Did you pick up Hanks's... There's a, there's a big, there's a big Hanks action. His bosom buddy himself? Absolutely. Which I don't think we knew, because I don't know, I don't know if I knew Peter Scolari the first time. I totally time. did. I would not have been able to pick him out, like, aged back then, but now I'm so exposed to him from Bosom Buddies, like, I could, I see, I saw him instantly. Yeah, like, what was weird is that before we watched Bosom Buddies, I knew him best from Girls, and I did not realize his backstory. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't know that he was the Bosom Buddy. Yeah. I just knew him as Hannah's dad, and I would be like, oh, I don't know who that actor is, but, like, he's good on the show yeah Bosom Buddies clearly here he like brings because this is also the movie I think the only one to date still where or maybe as of a couple years ago at least I don't think it's changed that stars Hanks features Rita Wilson features Colin Hanks features his daughter too oh I didn't I didn't catch her very small roles I don't think I know what she looks like so I missed her probably like them (laughs) screaming girl in crowd the weirdest thing so this is a this is my big takeaway from this movie and it's gonna get you know inappropriate in a hurry uh oh we talked about I think because I remember hearing about this I'm pretty sure we brought it up but Tom Hanks did not want to hire Tom Everett Scott because he thought he looked too much like a young Tom Hanks that's exactly why I thought he would want to hire him I thought he was trying to like live vicariously through this kid and be like, hey, you're like a lookalike. You just do an impression of me. But then the reason he hired him was because Rita Wilson's like, oh no, he's cute. Hire him. Which is very weird because Rita Wilson thought Tom Hanks was cute, presumably, which is why they got married. But what's even weirder is that in this movie that Tom Hanks writes and directs, he yep. basically sets up like Rita Wilson to be in love with a young Tom yes, Hanks, that is which weird. is very strange. And then the added dimensionality of just making Tom Hanks's character gay with Howie Long, not in the theatrical cut, right? Which is a wild, not like it's just like a where did that storyline come from? The, in between, like there's so many weird family dynamics here. It's just a strange, not good or bad. It's just a strange yeah. thing to be like, hey, my wife. Uh, in real life, you're going to be in love with young me, but he's not going to be in love with you because he loves one, you know, the foodie films man himself. He's got his mistress's music. Young Tom Hanks, Tom Everett Scott, guy, his wife, his girlfriend, his mistress, all of them, just jazz. Like he only loves yep. jazz. And then by the end, I guess he loves to live Tyler too. But he wants to work at Zeb's, is it? Is it Seb's? Seb's. My bad. I Check it on the stick. Backwards. But you know what? It's really weird when it all converges. And I think this is why it's not in the theatrical cut is because of what you're talking about is like you bring too much with it in this particular scene yeah. where all of that converges and Rita Wilson's dropping off a drunk Tom Everett Scott at the hotel and they bump into Hank's going out to meet Howie Long and they both joke about like Wanted taking him with yeah. and like, should we take the kid with us? And Rita Wilson's like, eh, I'm out of here. <laughs> it's just all kinds of awkwardness that just doesn't belong. I can't imagine like Hank sitting down writing like all these extra scenes and stuff like they just seem so out of place for the most part well so this is and I think we also maybe talked about this briefly on the Charlie's thing because we at, when we did the Charlie's podcast we had no idea we had no inkling that we were ever going to do a Tom Hanks podcast and I think when we did a trivia because Charlie's is not really in the movie that much and she felt even less in the movie this time because we weren't watching for her you know what I mean I feel like we were like oh she's in this so much but she's not <laughs> she's really not really he wrote this screenplay while doing press junkets for Forrest Gump in Philadelphia because he was so Board, or maybe it was Apollo 13, but like a couple movies, like a couple of big movies where he's just on tour, you know, doing press junkets, promoting these movies. He was so bored that he was like, I need to creatively do something. And so he wrote that thing you do. And Hanks appeared inside the actor's studio. And apparently Hanks said to the studio, quote, I'm a big honking star. All right. And you have to let me do what I want to do. And the studio said, you're absolutely right. Because like, even mackerel. by this point, Tom Hanks is Tom Hanks because he's we're now, you know, we're in the golden mile, right? Yeah. He's won back-to-back Oscars. He's done Apollo 13. He's done Toy Story. Toy Story. But I can't picture him just, like, walking into the boardroom and, like, whipping his dick out and throwing it on the table and be like, Hanks. 
Like, I get to do what I want. You said we were going to get rude. There's a hand gesture there that's not going to translate <laughs> to the audio medium, and I just want you to know that, uh, wow, was not expecting that. But I'm just saying, like, he doesn't strike me as that kind of guy, but I'm glad he is. I'm glad that he is, you know, he comes can be more assertive like that and get his shit done, because he's absolutely right. He's like, look, I deserve this shot. So many other writer-directors that used to be actors, I don't want to say don't deserve it because you write a movie and you get it to be made, you deserve it. If it's good it. enough to get made, or yeah. you're, you have enough clout, it gets made. It gets made and stuff, but it's just, you know, diminishing qualities. And it's not even like I think this is the best movie either, but it, it's definitely him for sure. Like, I, I feel like I know him better watching this movie, that kind of situation. Like, a lot like when we were watching Heckerling, right? Like, I feel like a lot of herself right. are in those movies and in those scripts. This feels like Tom Hanks, like, maybe I'll never get another chance to write a movie. This is how I felt as a teenager growing up. Gotta let people know. Because up to this point in his career, which we have not covered these yet, I think we're going to talk about them maybe on the Hanks Clip Show. If we do that, I'm assuming we're going to do that probably toward the end. But he's directed four other things, all TV episodes so far. He did one episode of Tales from the Crypt. He did one episode of the TV series of A League of Their Own, which I don't know if I knew. Did we know there was a TV series? Yeah, we knew there was a show, but we didn't watch it. He did one episode of Fallen Angels. If you remember, we did that for Soderbergh for Cinemakers. Oh, yikes. Not great. Terrible noir. And then we did he did a TV movie, a segment of a TV movie movie called Vault of Horror 1. So this was the fifth thing he's directed his first feature, and then he will be back in 15 years to direct Larry Crown, which is the second feature that he wrote. He's written other things. He actually wrote a movie called Greyhound, which is coming out. I don't think, it doesn't look like he's directing it, but he's going to star, I think, in this movie that comes out next year called Greyhound, which is a World War II era movie, which it feels like... He loves World War II. Hanks loves three things, it seems Mm -hmm. like. Space, history, specifically World War II, and music? Yeah, I mean, music's pretty universal, but those first two are definitely, like, loves Hanks. of his yeah. life, and, you know, the way I feel like I love Godzilla, like, <laughs> Hanks loves World War Two, yeah. or something like that. What do I love that like that? Neon-soaked coming-of-age movies? That, that doesn't feel appropriate. <laughs> but I don't know, yeah, but I, yeah, I get what you're saying. It's like, maybe the Fast and Furious, I don't well, know. Well, it's weird, like, I hate to bring up Woody Allen, but, like, if you watch his movies, and because it's funny, before we started doing Cage Club, like, I think the reason I was so on board is because I was going through careers already. Like, yes. I went and watched every Woody Allen movie and stuff, and it's like, he makes, like, five movies. Over right? and over and over, over and over again. As a comedy, as a drama, as a thriller, as whatever, as a farce. But And they all include, like, the same ingredients, you know? It's like, oh, tennis and like you know ner- yeah exactly like my analyst like oh, but it's you know the Beautiful same kind of ingredients <laughs> just the same thing as Nicolas Cage movies but no you're right like it's yeah there's everybody patterns everybody has their things and if you make them well enough I think for better or worse when you're pat I mean not really for better or worse really for better when you're passionate about something and you're good at what you do people are gonna care yeah and whether you're Tom Hanks writing stuff about World War II or about music or whatever, or you're Woody Allen making movies about New York or whatever he's doing, or, you know, even the people who listen to, like, our podcast, like, not everybody loves Nicolas Cage, for instance, the way that we do, but people recognize, and I think that by this point, we're pretty okay at what we do, and I think that if you're able to see the passion and there's a good enough product, you might not have, like, everybody might not love it, but, like, people are going to lock in on that, and I think that's what we're seeing here with Tom Hanks, that we have the evolution of him, because I actually don't remember it. I don't know, I mean, you're a little bit older, a little bit older uh, do you remember like when this movie came out was it marketed as like a tom hanks movie or was it the music movie because like growing oh, up i oh. think my dad loves the song yeah but i don't know okay so like i remember 
Yeah, for sure. Uh, that this was like, oh, Tom Hanks is directing a movie, okay. and it's about what a one-hit wonder is, and it is like it. It was marketed as like people had never heard of what a one-hit wonder was. I really? guess it's like more towards my generation, but like I knew what they were because I had older brothers and sisters, so I knew what a one-hit wonder was. But I feel like it came out in the mid '90s, right? So it was trying to like explain to a new generation about how music used to work as it's changing now because this is like on the cusp of like file sharing and digital music and all that would come out within the next five years right so like this whole thing of like finding local acts and building them up and getting radio play and all this and then that's an antiquated process now so it almost felt like a history lesson in Which a way. Which is actually weird considering the Elvis movie we just put out is also about the record publishing I know industry. it's like it's the same movie. Go check out Jailhouse Rock on Viva Pada Vegas. And go check out Loving You which is also almost the same movie. I think I mentioned think it's like that the, thing you do. The same movie. So I think, you know, like you said, like he, he loves history. I think this is him being a historian to yeah. a degree about, you know, how the mm-hmm. industry used to work and everything. And I love, that's my favorite stuff is that's, you know, the, them going up the charts and getting locked into a contract and all that kind of thing is like that I find interesting. I think what's really nice about this movie and Tom Hanks is sort of he, the work that he did on this movie is that he kind of tastefully includes himself like he's not in that much of the movie I think that he like I think his character is as great and as fun as it is number one because it's Hanks and we're watching for Hanks but I think yeah. because because he picks and chooses his spots right it's just like I'm not in it until like literally an hour in like it's an hour and like yeah. 10 seconds and he shows up which I don't know when the theatrical cut I don't know what that what that time frame is it's probably a little bit earlier right but I think that because he sparingly uses himself and is able to sort of highlight other, other characters other actors more you know I think that it works yeah, no, it, it helps that it's not, um, like, when we get to Larry Crown, like, not that that's a bad movie or anything, but it, I think it suffers from him being... Too much in it? In every shot, you okay. know, like, he, he is the main character in that movie, and I think it's, you know, not just for a first-time director, but I just think director-actors in general, you know, when they get too involved in their own movie, it can take me out of it. Like, I'm not necessarily a big fan of when... Tarantino shows up in his own movies per se but I love his movies but like you know that's just me like and he's not the only one and I think Hanks found a way maybe because he's Hanks at this bit the, yeah. the Hanks that he is too and the character is very peppy and fun and enigmatic and stuff and you know charming and so yeah I think he managed to figure out like a, a good way to get himself in there without being very annoying <laughs> let's talk a little bit because I don't have a ton of notes about this let's talk yeah. about the movie how it was directed because I think it's it's maybe intentionally so not very flashy like, I think it's kind of a straightforward story. Like, I was trying to look for directorial flourishes and stuff like that. There's right. one thing that I've noticed is really cool, that he uses the drum fill as, like, an audio, like, sort of an audio wipe from seeing the scene at one point. Oh, that's like, cool. That's kind of cool. But, like, was there anything in this movie that used to, like, I don't think it's, I don't mean this as an insult. No, But I also course. don't mean it as a, I think it's just, like, a, this is a competently directed movie. Yeah. Better than I could do. I'm, not, I'm also not trying to say that. But I don't think that there's anything here that's like, oh, this is a first-time director. It's messy. I think it's just like a, oh, yeah, that was a, that was a good movie. Like, do you think anything in, ter- in terms of the way that he either brought his story to life or whatever stood out as good or bad to you? So there, were, it's funny you say that because I was trying to watch it for Hanks, the director. And there's a few times where, you know, there's a few things I wish he would do more. Like, they felt like Hard Day's Night, like during the montage when they got popular, they're riding tricycles on a map of America and they're just like racing racehorses at the race track and it's like all this irreverent kind of stuff but it feels very out of nowhere because it's not in the rest of the movie like i almost wish like he he took this off and made it more farce 
skull at some point. But yeah, you're right. Like it, it's just presented as like matter of fact almost. Like the style comes in the period. Like he nailed the period. Like it's yeah. a period piece, yeah. and that does most of the work for him as far as the directing. And then otherwise, everyone's just pretty good. Pretty good actors here. Um, I think there's a few sequences that didn't quite that could have worked a little better. Like when Giovanni Ribisi breaks his arm. I don't think it's it's a very well right. structured sequence mm-hmm. that that needed a little bit more work. And I'm just being real nitpicky now. And I also think the the brawl at the pizza place was kind of yeah. like over directed. So there's a few moments like that. But but once they're on the road and like that half of the movie takes off like i i just sort of like fall into it and it's because it's very montage heavy and the song plays over and over again but uh, for the most part i think he did a really good job he's almost presenting it like a documentary in a way right like almost like almost. A behind the music or whatever which is like hey this is the story of this band and this one hit wonder i think that it could have been that could have been another way that they did it if they wanted to i think if they wanted to like fictionalize it a little bit more or defictionalize it like they could have like talking heads like i think it could have been kind of cool like if it was spinal tap but not a joke or any any of that kind of thing where like you have like historians being like oh yeah you know guy was the blah blah like just have sort of like i think that could have blended in well could have clint howard do it from beginning to end love it yeah you know because it could have been framed in like a hey this is a story like almost like have you seen documentary now yes so like you know how like helen mirren comes out and comes out and just like well, this is the story of a band you might not know called the O'Neaters. I mean, I'm sorry, the Wonders. And, like, it could have just been like that, where it's, like, framed within, like, the... I think, like, that could have worked. I actually would kind of be curious to see a version of that. Like, not that we really can do that, but I think it's almost that story that he's telling, where it's like, this is the band, this is who they were, this is how they got to where they are. I'm not going to really add too much flair and style. We're going to let the characters speak for themselves, which I think is a interesting sort of hands-off yeah. style right and i think to your point that when things get a little bit bigger there's a little bit more action things get a little murky muddy just because it's not as much focused on the characters growing and the dynamics and the relationship yeah i don't in, yeah i don't even necessarily feel like anyone changes they're all who they are from the beginning to the end they just sort of drift apart like it's not really a bad not thing, a bad right? thing like steve zahn's great but like he's the horny one right and like at the end he goes off with a girl and like you know did you notice that he's staying in room 237 yes yeah Which i was like that up huh it's because the shining's been on yeah. my mind recently a lot and Doctor Sleep. That movie is surprisingly good. But back to this. Um, speaking, well, oh, if I could just quickly, of course, switch gears real quick because I wanted to try and get this in earlier when we were talking about Hanks and his directorial stuff. Yeah, you mentioned two horror things in there, and why isn't Hanks more in, like? I'm surprised he's not more involved in horror films and hasn't been in more horror movies and things because, like, you know, sci-fi and horror, they're not that far apart, right? There's a lot of horror elements mm-hmm. in space film. And, you know, I think, like, he went off and worked with the... did the Cloud Atlas, right? Like, that was sure. a huge, ambitious kind of thing. And so, like, I was just... You know, that always strikes my mind. Every time we start talking about him and directing and, and genres and stuff, it's just like, I feel like he should have been in more horror movies along the way. I feel like, and this is, again, kind of a, a tangent to from away to toward from around surrounding hanks but i feel like until recently until like what do they call it i don't remember what they call it, but there's like the, the very annoying trendy nickname for like what like smart horror or whatever like there's like oh a, oh a elevated horror elevated horror mm. where like it's been like it, there's been good horror movies but i feel like until the last say five years there have not really been there's not been a widespread acceptance i don't think of horror and i think that's traditionally it's a genre for people sort of cutting their teeth for actors and directors coming from other places and being like oh like let me try this right because it's low budget it's just cheap to make it just get it out there and then if you're good you sort of make bigger things but i feel like since in the last couple years there have been directors like ari aster like you know robert eggers where doing these things and sort of 
elevating horror Jordan Peele, I feel like maybe, and this would be a cool thing, I think, it would attract more prestige actors to a genre that I'm sure would have loved to have had a Tom Hanks, yeah. but like never really gave an actor like Tom Hanks a reason to sink to that level. You know what I mean? Like I feel like it was sort of with what Blumhouse is doing and what Jason Blum has sort of revitalized and made it profitable and slicker and yeah. more like just a better kind of thing. Like elevating not in like the ooh, this is smart people horror. No, but like but actually just, just like like these are real movies now. Yeah, yeah. That's as opposed all. to just schlock. Right. Which is again our favorite thing. I think that it we, we could still see it, I think. Because okay, I think yeah. now is more of a time than ever before that we could see someone like Tom Hanks in the horror movie. But I also think that if he's like, he's in this historical people era right now, we're just like, maybe there's a historical horror? I don't know. I don't know. There's room for him. It's funny. I mean, because like he went off and he like did the circle, right? And it's like, I don't know. Like, if you have you seen the circle? Do you know? No, I know. I don't know anything about the circle except that it looks like a like a Apple cult kind of movie kind of thing. That's what it tries to be. So, if you are not familiar with the extended edition, here's some notes about the extended edition. So, this came out in 2007, which is 11 years after this. Like, can you imagine? Jesus. Can you imagine if you love this movie? You've probably seen. Actually, did you did you see this in theaters or no? No, no, no. I did not. I missed it. Feels like an HBO movie where it's just like on TV. I think I rented it. I think I actually got the VHS. But can you imagine, if you love this movie, you've probably seen it, you know, 10, 20, 50, because back then, fewer movies, people watch things differently. You've probably seen this a lot. And then 11 years later, you're like, oh my God, there's an extra 39 minutes. The only other instance I can think of is the Richard Donner cut of Superman 2, which came out like almost like 15 years later or something, I think, I feel. Like, it's crazy. I wonder if he was re-editing and re-cutting this because he was gearing up to do Larry Crown or something. Possibly. We, when we did the Charlize Theron podcast, we talked about like how Charlize had become more of a breakout star and, you know, obviously she had won her Oscar several years before with Monster and she's more of a thing. We called it the Charlize cut just because like, it feels like she's in it a lot more. Like it seemed like we were almost focusing on her and we were wondering on that podcast whether or not it was like a cash grab. But I like that idea of it that like he's like, let me get back into the editing bay. Let me see if I can add these things and let me add a little bit more character development because it's most Mostly, according to the Wikipedia summary, the way that they classify it as character development, a tastefully steamy look at Guy's, quote, makeout session with Tina, who is Charlize, at his apartment. Also goes more in depth with Guy's developing relationship with Faye via mild flirting. So basically it's like, hey, this is the guy is horny. Yeah. Uh, young Hank's getting his dick wet. His deteriorating relationship with Tina uh, and uh, Tina's budding relationship with her dentist, Dr. Collins. Again, it's sort of the Charlize cut there. It also suggests that the character portrayed by Tom Hanks, Andy White, is gay and in a relationship with former NFL defenseman Howie Long, which is all right. Uh, more camera time is also devoted between a tryst between the bass player, just uh, BP player or B player, the TB player. Ethan Embry. Yeah, because he's not of a name, just TV player. In the theatrical cut, this romance was depicted mainly as an unrequited crush, but in this one, it's like, oh no, it worked. And then at the end of the extended edition, rather than becoming a studio drummer, Guy becomes a disc jockey for K-Jazz and records documentary series of interviews with legendary jazz musicians. And so it's like a, it's almost like a different movie, but to, I'm not sure to what end. Like it, it feels like the theatrical cut, this is a metaphor or comparison I'm just trying to make now, is about the band and the extended yes. cut is about the members. It's about, or I would even go as far as to say theatrical cut is about the band and this cut is about guy Mm. this is the guy cut so it's really the hanks cut like about hanks that's what i'm saying because like the first like 20 minutes of this movie he doesn't even like meet those guys and when he does and remember we said this last time he starts calling them kids and things like that and he's so disconnected from them until like really until they start playing at the pizzeria and then when they get to la and stuff like he's off on his own doing his own thing like everyone sort of scatters and but we always stay with him is my main thing it's like we always stay with guy what's guy doing we always flash back to his parents we never even meet any of the other parents like what do they think they're those kids are younger than Guy, and 
and guy's dad is even is like livid that he's out there on the road alone and stuff so yeah that's we also have the whole element of uh giovanni rabisi basically replacing guy in his family right like, as, <laughs> yeah. like the guy that's right not guy. Not guy. Uh, some other quick trivia about this movie before we talk about maybe our favorite and least favorite moments. Tom Hanks named the Beach Band, which is Captain Geach and the Shrimp Shack Shooters, after two seafood restaurants near Beaufort, South Carolina, which is where many scenes in Forrest Gump were filmed. Oh, the Shrimp Shack? Got yeah. it. According to Tom Hanks, Charlie Theron was the first actress to audition for her part and the first person cast in the movie. Uh, Tom Hanks named his production company Playtone after the record label in this movie. Tom Hanks was presented with a Zippo lighter by the governor of Pennsylvania engraved with the film's logo because Hanks apparently collects Zippos, which are made in Pennsylvania. So I guess he does Zippos and typewriters, even though he seems to be giving his typewriters away now, but he had like over 100 typewriters. Uh, the Jonathan Skate character, who is Faye's boyfriend, and Steve Zahn's character, Jimmy Mattingly and Lenny Hayes, are named after, last names named after astronauts in Apollo 13. Ken Mattingly and Fred Hayes. Also, the guy who plays Jimmy is in Arsenal with Cage. Did you know that? Wait, who is? The guy, the guitarist in the Oneaters, Jimmy... Faye's boyfriend. Faye's boyfriend. Yeah, for, yeah, yeah, he's in Arsenal. Is he really? Yeah, he's like the he's like the buff guy with the baseball hat oh, on man. and everything. I think like, I blocked out. He's like the main Arsenal. character in Arsenal. Wow, amazing. There's two Hanks sports connections, but I feel like we have not really seen Hanks as sports fan to point to this point what in his career. What do you mean? Career. He did baseball. I feel they their own. But okay, so here's so here's the two things. And one is baseball related. So at one point you were mentioning this earlier when they're riding around on the large map of the United States when the character falls off the bike around Cleveland, Ohio on the map. And because before he was famous, Tom Hanks spent years there acting in local theater and be and remains because of that a diehard Cleveland Indians fan. The stumble on the bike, this might just be IMDB sleuthing, I don't know. Therefore represents his time there on his way to national stardom. And then Tom Hanks is an Oakland Raiders fan and named the pizza place where the band is the band is the house band Villapianos after former Raider linebacker Phil Villapiano. And that might be why Howie Long is in this, because Howie Long, very oh, famous Oakland Raider. So that's the power of writer-director. The major motion picture director in this movie, did you recognize him? No. Jonathan Demme. No shit. Who directed okay. Tom Hanks in a little movie called Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Uh, so Tom Hanks' character name I said before is Andy White, who was a session drummer in the 60s, known for replacing Ringo on the first single Love Me Do. Oh. Also Andy, specifically, last movie Toy Story. Huh. I don't think he named Andy. I think it was probably named after the drummer, but like a coincidence like Andy. Yeah. Colin Hanks, I, we mentioned, uh, he plays the usher who seats Faye later yes. in the movie. Yes, and he just kind of stands there like awkwardly after. So what I've not realized, my biggest takeaway from the IMDb trivia sleuthing or whatever, is that Tom Hanks wrote like nine of the songs in this movie. Oh, wow. He wrote Loving You Lots and Lots, which is a great song. Okay. Which is the opening the opening song. It's Not Far, La Senora de, de Dos Costas, Mr. Downtown, Voyage Around the Moon, Hold My Hand, Hold My Heart, Will You Marry Me, Spartacus, which is the drum solo, and Hollywood Showcase Theme. And I think Jesus. he also probably helped write That Thing You that Do. That Thing You Do. Wow. That's more impressive now, knowing that all those songs are created just for the film. That's yeah. that's pretty awesome. So if you had to pick a favorite moment, Hank's related, Hank's not related. Actually, I do want to say one other thing before. When Charlize shows up, you know, 10 minutes in the movie, I was like, there's my girl Candy Kirkendall. No, Candy Kirkendall is from Waking Up in Reno, but uh-huh. her name could be Candy in this movie. You know what I mean? Like, I think maybe her name was Candy in two movies? Some of the so. movie around, like, early two, like Reno and something else. But she's Tina, but I feel like this is a, this is a character whose name is Candy, because she's, yeah. like, bubbly and bubblegummy and, you know, just, it's poppy and whatever, right? So do you have a favorite moment in this movie? movie hanks related or not i mean everything's hanks related because he directed it i think this time what really caught me off guard was uh 
Paul Feig's cameo. Did we mention that last no, time or anything? So, you know, he, the director, like most famously, I guess, for the last Ghostbusters movie. And some office. He's been in the office, too. So he is the. Also, Bridesmaids and also Last Christmas. There we go. He is a radio DJ. So, sort of like before they go to Clint Howard's, they stop by this other DJ place. Oh, is he the one who's just like, say hello, guys? That yeah, one. yeah, yeah. And he just keeps going on and yeah. on and on and on. And he's killing it in this one take. And in the back, you could catch Hanks laughing, losing it. Yeah. And he puts his hand in front of his mouth, recomposes himself, but it's such a great one shot. He just nails that dialogue. In the radio voice. Yeah, in the radio voice. And then when he's done, he's just like, okay, guys, like whatever. He just like comes yeah, out of it perfectly. Like, look, there's a lot of great moments in this movie, but that was just a real fun one. I don't know if many people are aware of who that guy was that that was actually a cameo and everything. I was so wrapped up in the voice and in Hank's laughing that I didn't even like I honestly don't even know if I looked at the guy. Yeah. I also like I know roughly what Paul Feig looks like but I don't know if I would have recognized him. Oh also he did Freaks and Geeks, right? I think he directed most or okay. all of Freaks and Geeks. I was trying to find the Hanks connection, but I, I don't know. I don't, can't. But I mean, maybe it's just like, maybe they're just buddies. I don't know. Yeah. What I mean? Yeah. Aspiring director asked for some help and hey, be in my movie because Demi's in the movie. You know, there's a couple directors in the movie. My favorite moment in this movie is, I probably talked about it a lot on the Charlie's episode. Go watch, go listen to our Watch the Throne episode. We had Nico Vasillo of X's for Podcasts and HTML on We actually go pretty in depth, yeah. yeah. My favorite moment in this movie is, I think, one of my favorite moments in any movie ever is when they hear their song on the radio. Oh, yeah, that's time. a great it's just, moment. It's because the so energy well they capture is so wonderful. Like, you know, Liv Tyler mailing the letters and just like losing her mind. The like, chain oh, reaction. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's just, it's captured so beautifully and there's such like joy there and yeah, such energy. The energy. And, I mean, honestly, they, they play bigger venues and they do bigger things, but, like, that's their peak, right? Like, that's, like, yeah. the high... It's all, in a sense, kind of downhill from there. It's just such a wonderfully great moment, and I love that so much. Yeah, I think that proves that Hank's is a good director. Like, that... I mean, not all the time, but, like, he can pull it off, you know what I'm yeah. saying? Like, if he took whatever time, patience, care, had it behind every other scene in this movie, it would be a masterpiece, you know, because that sequence is amazing. I also love the sequence when they play the song for the first time and Guy starts it too fast and they all have to catch up and yeah. that, like that's so well directed because in that dance hall yeah at the pizzeria yeah because yeah. like the, you know they have to catch up and like it has to sound bad but not too bad and also like they can do it but they can't and by the end they're playing the song the way it should be played right. so like yeah that and the uh, radio store definitely like awesome moments Love it. On the other, on the flip side of the coin, what about this doesn't work for you? What would you change? And I think it's a difficult thing to say because there's so much of the director's cut that doesn't necessarily work. Yeah. There's a lot of fat. Like there's one scene where they're just like goofing around, where they're like hopping over the the parking meters on the street. And yeah. Like it's like well, that's when he seconds, breaks his arm. Right. But like it's still like, they, there's it went so on much, of much that. longer. Yeah. Um, but what about this doesn't work for you? So basically, I think this came up last time too. Is how like Liv Tyler's just like sidelined. Like, okay. when they get to L.A., like, I really feel like there was... I don't know why she just gets sick and put in bed, because there's much more interesting drama if she sees Jimmy hanging out with the woman who was trying to give him advice. Yeah. If if she sees everybody sort of pairing off with these other women, and then she spends time with Guy or something, like, there's... Or she's there's, more active in her... Yeah. In her life. Yeah, that too. And then when she does get better, she just goes on, like, a shopping spree. Like, I just feel like she's really mistreated here, where, like, in the first half of the movie, she does feel like a part of 
the band. Like she's doing the merch. Like she's making sure like everyone's like in a, not in a good mood, but like she's bringing the sandwiches. Like she's like a real den mother kind of thing. And then maybe it's saying something that when she's sidelined, like the band fall, falls apart. I don't know, but like it kind of bugged me because it's like now like we're gonna get some strong conflict, and then it's like nah, she's just gonna like. Yeah. in a bed for 20 minutes that was kind of a bummer i do appreciate about her character that she has that great not like a breakup monologue but she says like you know i've wasted thousands and thousands of kisses on you which that is like not like i've wasted my time but like i've wasted my love on you like you failed me i um you know this is something you sort of jokingly texted me about like you forgot that this is the movie where one other white guy say or hank saves jazz or whatever yeah. but like the thing that doesn't work for me this time and i love your idea i wholeheartedly endorse that but tom everett scott is such a honky like he's like so like i think intentionally so like he's just a corny dude yeah but like when he's at the jazz club and just like it's too much yeah you know it worked much better in collateral right with tom cruise's character because he's about to murder not just that but we didn't know that at the time you're like wait this old white guy loves jazz like and he's gonna school jamie fox on it and but it like kind of worked a little better and this is just like like i love the scene where there's the guy who's like the 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 bellhop the doorman whatever who's like this is my hotel and i love when he's like hey where should i go for good jazz and he quizzes him he gets it right he's like send him the good place right basically like that's cool and then like it's cool when he's in there and then like just the way he turns on a dime is kind of funny because like i get it when like the jazz is on he's like drumming along and like being like real like goofy with it and then rita wilson's talking to him and, like they're not there's no jazz and he's just like i don't care uh, like, yeah, like whatever yeah. just like Where's it's the jazz? too much yeah and then you know the way he gets all excitedly fanboyish around the band like it just feels i don't know if it's not genuine enough or too genuine like there's something there's something amiss here like the tonally i don't think it aligns in the right way and it's like oh like what what are you doing no it's just it's not the movie man like that's the problem i think is like maybe he made the movie with the intention of releasing the two and a half hour cut and then when he brought it down to whatever it is the theatrical cut is like oh shit like we can't reshoot this ending like we just have to sort of alter it the best we can because it really pinpoints the fact that this is guy's movie when it hasn't been the theatrical cut is not just about him and then so it gets really awkward at the end when it becomes like where'd everyone go everyone ghosted out and it's just like the guy movie it's too much yeah and it's you know we just talked about those great moments that he directed with when they were all excited and all that kind of stuff and this is just yeah it's kind of amateur hour when he's just like i don't care when are they gonna play more jazz and it's like okay i get it so two things from that number one you're talking about like where do people go another thing that i don't like about this movie and it's not exactly what you're talking about but like they have we have the fictional like where are they now like i don't care oh yeah Stop yeah it. like I, I get that when you have a real person but like either tell a story or don't you know what i mean like don't end the movie where you want to end it if you're like hey they get married like just have another scene right it's, it's weird because it felt like this american graffiti thing and it's like what it's not that type of movie at all i get that people love the characters and whatever but like are you really like oh good i'm glad they got married like you, you i think you kind of think that they're gonna be together for a while you know it's mm-hmm. like have i think have faith in the story you're telling yeah and don't have like a coda just no, unnecessarily there. it's so strange because about the bass player it's like oh yeah he served two tours in nam and opened up a car dealership or some shit it's like cool. what? who gives a shit like exactly. uh, it's not even his movie anymore what i'm about to say is about to spoil the end of la la land so if, you want, <laughs> if you have not seen la la land yet skip forward 30 seconds but tom everett scott yes plays emma stone's husband at the end of la la land because damien chazelle loved this movie and i think wanted to get tom everett scott who i think had mostly retired from acting or whatever okay and i don't even know if he has very many lines in that movie because he's basically just like a he's basically just not gosling right yeah. like just like she wound up with somebody mia ended up with somebody who's not gosling and they go to the club together or whatever but i love that connection that like he goes from this jazz movie to that jazz movie cool yeah i like that 
any other thoughts about this movie? We mentioned Scolari. Um, you know, not a Tom Cruise movie, but lots of sunglass action. Oh, sure. Montages were cool. Guy is a young Hanks. No, I think I'm good to go. So, speaking of Tom Cruise, do you think Tom Cruise could play this Tom Hanks role? Because um, I think it's I think it's both hmm. he would never, but also you know what? like when Tom Hanks shows up, he's like this, like, he's buttoned up executive. I'm like, mm, he that, would never do that. But I don't know. What I was thinking is maybe I can see like the risky business character growing up to be a music exec, but not in the style of Hanks, so, at least in the beginning, right? What I was thinking of, again, is more like Vince, like that sort of, uh, you know, Vince from Color of Money. That's, oh, not Vincent Collateral. Oh, no, not Vincent in Collateral, but Vincent in uh, Color of Money. i got to okay. specify now. You know, like how he's sort of like that charming, fast-talking, sure. idiot kind of guy. And like, I think he could bring... I don't know. And also, I was thinking what Tobin said one time he was on about how he's like sort of darker than Hanks and stuff. And I think that would fit well for a record executive, you know? I think he would play a good, slimy record executive that turned out to be a nice guy, actually, but like needed to play the slime up to sort of maneuver through the industry. Uh, not that Hanks' character is slimy at all, but... No, he's I, like the bad... He's like a bastion of goodness. In yeah, yeah, yeah. But I feel like he can do it. I think it would be different, darker, and you wouldn't trust him the entire right. time. But by the end, you'd be like, oh, he had their best interests. Like, I think you could play the character, but maybe not in this movie. Yeah. Or maybe he could, or, but like, you wouldn't You wouldn't feel the same way about it. Like, it's a weird... It's one of the few times where I think, like, it doesn't necessarily work. Is there another character in here that you think he could play? Like, in 96... So this is Mission Impossible era. So he's, like, you know, 30... Is there someone in here he could play? I mean, could he play Guy? I don't think so. I don't think he'd want to. Guy's, even though it's a lead, it's not like a, it doesn't feel like a role for him, that his type of role. Not not after doing like Mission Impossible and stuff. Because like um, he couldn't play the other band members because they're all like made to be younger, right? Because if he's aged to Guy, yeah. not to the everybody else, right? Right, right. Is there anybody else in this movie that he could play? I would see him as, you know, the Clint Howard role or the Paul Feig role, like in, the, in a cameo, right? But again, like I don't a know cameo, that, I don't know if he would a, do that. Like a cameo as a disc jockey. Like there aren't that many other really big roles here. I mean, maybe he could do Mister Downtown. Maybe he'd come in and be that guy who sings that song on the tour and everything. The, yeah, I could in, see him in, in the blue blazer sure. or something. There's, a, it's amazing to me, and I think this is partly just because we just watched and we're about to record our Viva Pod Vegas episode, which is out now. But like maybe just movies about the record industry. But there's so many comparisons I think to be made between this movie and Jailhouse Rock. It's just like, it's weird, like how on the surface level, they're so unrelated, yet they're wildly similar. Yeah, I think, you know, not to spoil too much, but like the only thing that didn't happen to the Wonders is that someone like stole their song, right? Like <laughs> otherwise, like it's basically the same trajectory. Yeah. And I think that, and I think that's what you find in movies of the age of when Jailhouse Rock and, you know, Loving You and all those, like, I don't think Elvis is the only one making those types of movies. I think it's it's a formula. It's a type of film out there. It's, you know, it's a star is born. It's like that caught on and became a formula. Does Tom Hanks do anything in this movie that sets him on the, or no, new question, because we've changed it. He's, a, he's we've dubbed him America's dad, right? Like we've said that he is That's right. America's dad status, right? Correct. I think he continues that here, because I think he's dad to the band. Yeah, absolutely. Right? 100%. So there's nothing he does that sort of jeopardizes, because he, again, isn't evil, isn't manipulative, seemingly wants the best for these guys, both in their personal life and in their professional life. He's a dad to these boys. He's the dad, and Liv Tyler is the den mom. Like, they're a weird <laughs> co-parenting couple, and she goes absent, and they fall apart. Like, so I guess he's not a great dad sometimes, but, you know, no. he has their best interests at heart. Absolutely. 
He lets them make their own mistakes. Yeah. All right. Okay. The last thing I have to do is Tom Hanks awards the Woodies. Oh, my goodness. Here Best film, worst film, I don't no. think either. Especially not this cut. Best or worst role, don't think either. Most wasted performance, no, because it's intentionally so. I think, you know, pound for pound, this is probably one of his better ones just because there's not a it's lot good of good character, him. yeah. Is this the first time in a long time he hasn't been the star? Pretty much. Right? I think so. Best ensemble? Mm, it's a pretty. It's pretty good, but I don't. It doesn't really. I don't know. It again kind of feels like we shouldn't almost. We almost shouldn't nominate that here because it's not like a, an ensemble built around Hanks. It's an yeah. ensemble built by Hanks. Right. But he's part of the that's ensemble, good point which is too. A strange thing. Yeah. Best fight. He does not get in the fight. Best dance scene. He does not dance. I mean, he you know grooves a little bit. Yeah, on the side of the stage. Best party scene. Not uh, really. I mean, he's not... Like, again, this is sort of like a weird kind of remove from it. Best outfit wardrobe for Hanks? No. Best death? He does not die. Best line of freakout? Is there anything that he says in this movie that's notable? Not that I can think of. He said something to Guy. He goes, don't lose those sunglasses. They're your trademark. You know, it's like things like that. Like, I can't really... Can't, nothing really jumps out. Then nothing really uh, jumps out. I will say, though, best theme song... Or best soundtrack theme score, for sure. <laughs> oh, that yeah. thing you do. Uh, I am going to nominate just to have a little bit of diversity here because we have three women and a dog in Best Hanks love story because we've got Tom Hanks and Beasley and Turner and Hooch. I'm going to say Tom Hanks and Howie Long. It's very brief, but I like having a little bit of, you know, best non-Hanks actor male or female. Do we want to nominate anybody? I mean, Liv Tyler's pretty good, but again, you, She's by all right, to but... your definition, she gets sidelined. Yeah. You know, as much as I think it started bothering me how much Tom Everett Scott was trying to just like mimic Hanks and stuff like that. Like, it's kind of the Woody Allen thing, right? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah, so, I didn't like it. An even more apt comparison that you made before. Two awards, best soundtrack and best love story. Okay. Well, Which, two big ones. One of those is not really true, but you know. It'll probably, like, it, that best song is, yeah, definitely. It, it could win that. I know, I'm thinking, I was about to say that, but I, I didn't want to, I but didn't want to jinx it. But I think the bonus, the benefit of that is that he wrote it, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's like a cool, like, he helped write the song, it's a, like, he's, it's not his song, but it's his song, it's like this weird... It wouldn't exist without it's him. not his movie, but it's fully his movie, it's it's a strange, you know, strange thing. Awesome. Any other thoughts about that thing you do? No, I'm good, I'm good for a while on this one. So next week, Mike, you and I are recording Mission Impossible 3 over awesome. on Cruise Club, and then in two weeks right here, oh boy, big one, Saving Private Ryan. Oh, Can you imagine big, going from big, this big. to that? Nope. He skips 97. He goes from 96 to 98. I'm sure because he was doing press for this and then also and then Private Ryan's a Private big Ryan movie. to go to war school. But yeah, going from Toy Story to That Thing You Do to Saving Private Ryan and then Whiplash back to You've Got Mail. Like This is again sort of like a Oh boy. All over. All over the place. But for all things Hanks for the Memories and all 26 shows, you go to cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. Email us, hanks at cageclub.me. Come back next week over our Cruise Club feed for Mission Impossible 3. Come back in two weeks for Saving Private Ryan. Check out all 1,300, almost probably 1,400 episodes by now on the Cage Club Podcast Network at cageclub.me slash shows. And just let us know you're listening. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manson. We'll see you next time right here on Hanks for the Memories. Oh, don't look so sad, Lloyd. We'll be fashionably late.